Welcome to the Free Chapel Podcast. Let's get into this week's message. Um, I just want to say what a privilege it is for me to be a part of this series. Uh, I consider your pastor and, uh, and his wife just to be like on the Mount Rushmore of pastoral couples. Uh, my wife and I have learned and grown so much watching uh, this ministry and just this amazing, amazing church. And we have been now married 19 years. Jenny and I have. Uh, my wife's back home preaching in Montana. And I literally can't even begin to articulate how much our family and our home dynamic is better because of the way we've received from this ministry. And so to be entrusted with the opportunity to be a part of this church in any way is a thrill. So when Pastor Jensen calls or texts, it's like the answer is yes, what's the question? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I just hold this ministry in such high, high esteem. And so would you just help me thank God for your leaders here in this church, Pastor Jensen and Cherise, their whole family, just amazing. And I think my hat is off to you for what is happening in this season. I really think it's important and more churches sh- should follow suit in bringing conversations like this that normally are at singles conferences or dating conferences uh, or, or marriage conferences right to the center stage so everyone in the church can hear them and experience them. And I want to acknowledge that when we bring up sex and romance and dating and these topics, for some of us, our, our, our guards kind of go up. We cross our arms a little bit, and, and rightly so. These are complicated and complex waters that we're about to dive into. There'll be sharks in these waters, mates, right? And not all of us are at the same spot when it comes to relationships. Some are happily married and just in need of a tune-up and, and growth and kind of a shot in the arm. And that's good. So those of you who are doing well, we say, God bless you. May it grow in great ways. But others are, are at a place where there's just in, incredible regret already, baggage already. Uh, for others of you, I, you know, you would say, hey, I'm not even like at a place where this is even on my radar. Some of you, you know, junior high, high school, whatever, you're like, dating is not even the thing I'm thinking about. Marriage is so far from where I'm at today. And I would just say to you, you should take twice as many notes in this series as anybody else. Because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the best time to begin working on your marriage would be before you're in one, before you've uh, accumulated consequences from, from wrong decisions and wrong living. The best time would be right now to focus it. It's easier to build a, a man or a woman than it is to fix one that's broken. But if you are here and your heart's been pulverized into a thousand smithereens and you already have some romantic miles on the odometer and there's kind of a trail of, of tears, so to speak, inside your life, then I would tell you don't tune out either because, yes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But last time I checked, our great physician has a pound of cure for you too. So every single one of us are going to listen and hear and hopefully hear from God, not for what we should have done way back when, but what we should do now. We are not here in this series, the list of speakers, all of us, we are not here to shame you for your past, but to fight for your future. In Jesus' name, amen. And I, as, I, as your pastor mentioned, have some resources I hope help you. Um, the most recent, we just released this this year, is the Marriage Devotional. This is 50 do, 52 devotions to strengthen the soul of your marriage. We wrote this with a married couple in mind or an engaged couple in mind. 
whether you've been married for a long time or you're brand new to this all, uh, that would encourage you. We kind of wanted to write the marriage devotional that we wished we could read that would have great activity ideas and date night suggestions, conversation starters, prayers to pray together that's all based on scripture, but that's not too daunting. That's not too long where you're like, oh my gosh, we're never going to make it through this. So this would be something you could read together on a date night or read separately and then discuss together. That way, while you're waiting for your awesome blossom to come, you're not like, how was your day? Great. How was yours? It gives you some concrete stuff to go through and really makes it easy for you there. But the message I'm going to begin with today in this series, and I have a different one for the 4 p.m., so come on back and double dip in Jesus' name at church today. Uh, I want to speak to you out of this book. The book Swipe Right, which is subtitled The Life and Death Power of Sex and Romance. Swipe Right. And the title of my message, if you do take notes in church, is The Problem with Pineapples. So jot that down, and hopefully that will make sense in the next 37 minutes or so. The Problem with Pineapples. Now, why would I call the book Swipe Right? Well, because there's a lot of swiping going on. Dora the Explorer said, swipe or no swiping, but we didn't get that memo. We did not get that memo. There is so much swiping going on. They say we touch our cell phone screens 2,617 times per day. That's how many times individual swipes or taps of, or touches of the screen. And by the way, that data, which is the most recent data I could find, is pre-pandemic. And what they say has happened since the pandemic is our screen time has only exponentially jumped. I mean, the average screen time for an American is over seven hours per day on their mobile phone alone. Astounding. But 2,617 touches was the the study of how many different times, individual times, a finger touched a screen on a phone. There are only 1,440 minutes per day. So what that means is that on average, we will touch our phones more times in a day than there are even minutes. And it's messing us up. I mean, it's not making us better at conversation. That's for dang sure. Studies have shown that even the presence of an iPhone on the table, even one you're not touching actively, diminishes the emotional quotient of the conversation, the meal, or the moment. They call it the iPhone effect. Because even if you aren't on it, everyone at the table knows it could ring at any moment and it's present. So a better rule would be to put it down below or even into a purse or a pocket, the iPhone effect. How much it's changed our life in a relatively short period of time. I mean, because realize, especially for those of you who are under 20, this wasn't always how the world was. Not all of us always carried the full unbridled power of the internet with us everywhere we went. We used to have to print out map quest directions to get around and then look at them backwards driving back home. When we wanted a movie, it wasn't like, hey, Siri, play me a movie. It was go to Blockbuster, rent something if you could find it. If it wasn't like, you know how it used to fool you where you'd see the video, but there wasn't one behind it? So while you were browsing, you might hide one behind like a documentary or something. You're like, I might come back to that one. And then you had to rewind the thing and return it on time to not get a late fee. How much the world has changed in a short period of time. Only since 2007 has there been a Facebook. Only since 2007 has Twitter blown up. I mean, it's all relatively new, all of this that's come into the world that's changed the world so drastically. So now we're all on the phones all the time, all on the phones driving down the road. You, just drive, you see people driving down the road, just fully engrossed, absorbed, drafting full emails. It's crazy how much the world has changed. 
And they say that many of us experience something called nomophobia. Nomophobia is the fear of being separated from your phone. Have you ever felt like maybe you lost it in an Uber, you left it in a hotel, the, the panic, that quick, that's nomophobia, the, the panic, the fear of being separated from the phone. And they, they also say that many of us experience something on a regular basis called uh, phantom vibration sensation. This is where you feel like, some of you, it just happened, you just twitched a little bit, I saw it, it's right there in your eye. It's where you feel like you got a text message. And so you pull your phone out to see who texted you. There's no text. You can't explain it because you were positive you felt it. Do you know what's happening? Your brain so craved the hit of dopamine that was coming from the new text or new novelty or new arousal or stimulation from that text message. So your brain was like, I know what I'll do. I'll make them think there was one so I can get the, 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 the shiny bell. The rat inside your brain wanted the, 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 the bell to ring, and so it, it conjured it up. You should be very afraid of this, of, of, of the way you're rewiring yourself by the stimulus and response and the routine and the reward and the way your brain gets rewarded by it. It's, it's very troubling how, how this is so new and, and changing us. Now, you're like, Levi, this is all very true, and yes, I do want to get my screen time down and all the rest, but what does this have to do with sex? Oh, a lot. Because a lot of the swiping involves sexuality. It's estimated, and there are differing statistics, and it's changing all the time, but somewhere upwards of 30% of the data transmitted across the internet is pornographic in nature. And that's just the explicit, outright Pornhub or whatever it is, a site that's actually, that's actually like explicitly a pornographic site. That's not including all of the risque, provocative. It's not quite porn, but yes, we're looking at you TikTok. Yes, we're looking at you Instagram Explore page. Stuff that's like quasi-pornish and where we're seeing these scantily clad images, this risque images. So, so it could even be more at the end of the day. So, so much of what's happening on the internet and swiping, it's all uh, meshing, meshing together. And then there's... Dating apps. Dating apps, again, a relatively modern phenomenon, uh, but now billion-dollar enterprise. There are so many of them, and more being probably invented every single day. OkCupid, Hinge, Happen, and the 800-pound gorilla, and the one that really started the party, uh, which is, of course, Tinder. Now, online dating has been a thing for a long time, and there was eHarmony and Christian Mingle, and there was different ways of meeting people. But what Tinder really brought to the party was it made very easy what's called a casual encounter or a no-strings-attached sexual opportunity. Uh, to put it very bluntly, Tinder made finding a stranger to have sex with for an evening and e as easy as ordering an Uber. And never in the, the course of human history has it been like that. I mean, there were always bars you could go to or clubs you could go to. There was always, if you were looking to have a one-night stand, it was always, but like finding porn when I was in middle school, you had to find a physical magazine. Like my next door neighbor who said, hey, guess what I found? And took me into his garage and showed me a box of Playboy magazines his dad had not too carefully hidden. And that was like heroin in my brain as a sixth grader. All of a sudden, seeing that for the first time. But it was relatively difficult to get your hands on it. Well, now it's a very easy thing. We have to actually work very hard if we don't want to see pornography. Uh, USA Today at one point published, and I'm sure it's different now, 
But at that point, when I read the article, the average age a young person in America first sees pornography is age eight, and probably even younger now. You have to go out of your way to avoid it. And so again, with a sexual encounter, it's, it's like it's right there in your face. All you have to do is download an app. I'm looking to have sex. Is there someone who also would like to do that? Now you're like, no, there's, there's people out there who use these apps to actually find someone to marry. Yes, I'm sure there are three people out there who are hoping these apps will. But how they are commonly used is, you know, hey, I'm 22. I'm focused on my career. I'm not looking for a marriage. I'm not looking for a relationship. I live in New York or live in Charlotte or live in Atlanta. And hey, but I still got appetites. I still got needs. So on Friday night, you know, I'm just, I'm, I can download the app. Boom, 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 swipe. One young girl said, no, no young man these days is looking to marry. No young man's even looking to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even, even into one of what has now been labeled a situationship, a situationship, somewhere in between a hookup and a boyfriend, but a situationship. Uh, she said, young men today are not looking to, to date. They're looking to hit it and quit it. To hit it and quit it. And this represents, sociologists say, one of the two biggest seismic shifts in how humans approach sexual intercourse in all of history. The first being when we stop being nomadic and settle down in agricultural communities. So a lot is changing in our time. And for us to come of age and to go into this world, you young people who are going to go out of your parents' houses into college and out into the world to make decisions, this is the world you're growing up in. And this sermon isn't trying to seek that we would all, as an application item, quit swiping, okay? Let's just get that out of the way right now. Like, we're not saying, all right, everybody bring your phone down to the front of the stage at the altar call. We're going to pour lighter fluid on them all. We're burning up our technology, right? The Chinese got balloons up in the air anyway, so forget about it. Just everybody come with me to Montana. We'll all make our own clothing, churn our own butter. Uh, We knew this was coming. We're going into the bomb shelter. We are coming out when Jesus is in charge, right? Because we can't reach a world that we've abandoned. And Jesus said we need to be in this world, just not of this world. So my sermon is not quit swiping. It's somehow we got to learn how to swipe right. And I'm not talking about left right. I'm talking about wrong right. Because there is wrong and there is right. And we need to figure out how to navigate in a God-honoring way our decisions when it comes to love and sex and marriage and dating. Amen? Exodus 2.12. Exodus 2.12, it's the story of Moses. You know it very well. It says, so he, Moses, looked this way and looked that way, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. An interesting text you probably might think when it comes to the conversation of sexuality, but, but Moses had a desire a desire that I want to make the case was a good desire, in fact, a God desire. And the desire was to protect the Hebrew people against the Egyptian soldiers, the Egyptian rulers. So acting on a good desire, he took matters into his own hands once he had looked to the left and looked to the right and seen no one. You, you might say, Moses swiped left, Moses swiped right. And so he did a thing based on a feeling and acted on that feeling But in so doing, he neglected to look in the one direction that all of us need to look, and that is up. 
Moses failed to look up. If Moses would have looked up, he could have lived right because God could have shown him, Moses, I do want you to actually kill this Egyptian soldier, but not right here, not right now. If you will just hang with me, there's gonna come a day where standing at the Red Sea, you're gonna raise your staff in the air. And when you do that, I am gonna use you to bury the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And I'm gonna use you not to just deliver a few Hebrew children, I'm gonna use you to deliver all the two million Hebrews on dry land through to the promised land a land flowing with milk and honey. But Moses learned on that day that when you do the right thing, a good thing, in the wrong way and at the wrong time, it actually makes it more difficult for God to bless you in the long run. So it brought about this 40 years of a holding pattern for Moses where he was being groomed uh, for God to bring to a place where he could actually enter into his best for his life. And I think the same is true for us. When we... Uh, act in a way where we're not looking up, but we're looking to the left. What is culture doing to the right? What are our friends doing? Based on good feelings, which is the desire for sexual intimacy, we actually pull ourselves away from God's best and make it more difficult for him to use us. The right thing in the wrong way and at the wrong time makes it harder for for God to be able to bless you. So young people, hear me. When you feel inside yourself these sexual feelings and this desire to give in to your feelings, it's not the sexual desire that's the problem. It's just, it's not a, it's not a no issue. It's just a not now issue. My wife had to remind ourselves of that all the way through our dating and engagement because we were attracted to each other. We wanted to act on those feelings. So it wasn't no to those feelings. It was just not yet, not, not right now. As you find in the book of Song of Solomon repeated this phrase, do not awaken love until it is time. So what I'm really trying to get you to see is that sex isn't the problem. Lust is the problem. Sex uh, and, and the desire for it is a part of how God made us. So if you take notes right under the title, I want you to write this down. This is the most important thing I want, you to, I want to tell you today. God wants you to have amazing sex. I thought I would get a little response to that, right? You know, like, pre- preachers don't normally say stuff like that. Yeah, that's because unlike in this church where you have amazing preaching every single week, many times us preachers spend our time on stages like this answering questions that no one's asking. Meanwhile, the real issues that are devastating our lives go unspoken to. It's like you're drowning in credit card debt. You have no idea how to raise your kids. Your sexual life is a mess, but the preacher's talking about Gog and Magog. And you're like, that's great for Gog and his friend Magog, but I got problems. (laughs) And so we need refreshingly honest, blunt talk about these things. And I know some of you are like, man, you're just going for it. Did you say hit it and quit it a moment ago? Preachers don't say stuff like that. Listen, if we don't speak to these issues, the devil will have no problem doing so. If we don't have these conversations with our kids about sex, we're leaving Instagram to do the sex ed talk. We're leaving the gym class. We're leaving the locker room. We're leaving that that forum on, on the Xbox for people to be educated. So we need to speak to our kids about these things. If you're a parent, get this book, read it through with your kids once a week. One of the reasons I feel like God wanted me to write it was to help parents of teenagers and preteens transform an awkward talk into an ongoing conversation that points to wise choices. 
And it's been incredible to watch God use it in that way. But God does want you to have amazing sex. The devil would love for you to think sex was his idea. He's like, yeah, I've got a great idea. Let's have sex, right? And like, like as though it was like his idea, right? God's like, fool, I've got the patent for that on the wall in my office, right? God's the one who invented sex. You see that in, immediately in the, in the book of Genesis. God's created the world and God creates man. And it's a good world. And God said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But then he got to Adam and his aloneness. And God said, it is not good that Adam should be alone. It is not good that man should be alone. And so marriage was created as a rescue operation to rescue Adam from his aloneness. And he brought Eve to Adam. God brought it. God, God gave away the bride. He was the father giving away the bride at the first wedding. And Adam was excited. We know he was excited because he wrote a poem when at the first wedding in human history, Adam was so full of joy, he started writing poetry. Now, guys, how turned up do you got to be to start writing poems? I mean, it takes <laughs> level 10 excitement. The poem's in the Bible. Adam said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. <laughs> Steaming. Those lyrics. <laughs> bars, right? And it's crazier because that's, that's just like in the Hebrew, because it comes across. But if you actually translate it word for word from the original Hebrew, it's apple bottom jeans and then boots with the fur. <laughs> he said, girl, if you had a twin, I would still choose you, right? It's like Drake lyrics, unbelievable. And God wasn't offended. It wasn't like God interrupted and said, Adam, get your mind out of the gutter. Eve, stop it. No, 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 stop that. That's naughty, 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 right? He, he brought them naked to each other. I think he knew what was going to happen next, right? It's his gift. The Bible opens with a wedding. The Bible closes with a wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus' first act, his first miracle, publicly revealing himself to the nation of Israel, was at a wedding where he turned water into wine. He was blessing this, this union. The Bible says that they invited Jesus and his disciples to the wedding, so he came. Here's a thought. If Jesus isn't working in your life, in your marriage, have you invited him? He always comes where he's welcomed. He always comes where he's wanted. If you invite him into your heart, he will come in. You invite him into your home, he will come in. I know you've talked to your sister, and I know you've complained to your coworkers, but have you invited Jesus into your relationship? Have you said, Jesus, take the wheel? So Adam and Eve, they've come together. God blesses the union. He speaks life over it, and he gives instructions on how to use the gift of sex that was his idea in the beginning. It's Genesis 2.24. Theologians refer to it as the passage of primary reference on human sexuality and on the institution of marriage. It's a passage so important, it's referred to again and again and again by Paul on the lips of Jesus, and it is how we are to understand this thing that God made. Ready? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's the marriage bed. It's the marriage bed. One man, one woman coming together in the covenant of marriage. The agreement is for a lifetime till death do us part, not till debt do us part, right? Till death do us part, coming together and choosing to live together in God's sight. And God says within those confines, within the marriage bed, enjoy. Within the marriage bed, it is good. Newsflash, before there was sin, there was sex. And before there was sin, that sex was called good. God called it good. This is good. It is not good that man should be alone. So here's something that's good, the marriage bed. 
So within the parameters God established, we are to enjoy the gift of sexuality. If you like the idea of sex, that's a good thing. That's not something to be ashamed of. That shows you that our whole approach on talking to young people about sex is, is, is kind of off kilter if we don't start here. Because then it turns into sex is dirty, naughty, and gross. Stop thinking about it, you perverts. Save it for your husband. I am getting conflicting messages here, right? No, no, sex is God's idea. The devil perverted it. You see, God says within this parameter, the marriage bed, you can have it, you can enjoy it, it'll bless your heart. By the way, it takes practice at and getting better at. We have to strip away the cultural baggage of the movies and what we've, 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 we've imposed on it. It's meant to be awkward. It's meant, like, if you never laugh while you're having sex, you're doing it wrong. Like, you, it's just... It's, it's ridiculous. It's wonderful. It's meant to bring pleasure to your life. Sex is pleasurable, but it's also powerful. And so God told us how to use it. All powerful things come with instructions. God told us how to use it so we wouldn't hurt ourselves. Sex is pleasurable. Sex is powerful. But I know, I know, I know. When we start to talk about God's rules for sex, that's where everyone gets an attitude. That's where everyone starts getting a little bit irritated, right? Oh, oh, you're going to tell me I can't. You're going to tell me I can't. You're going to tell me I can't. Pause. When else do you ever use that logic? You bought something powerful, and they have the audacity to tell you how to use it. Imagine you went to Home Depot to buy a chainsaw, and as you were opening your chainsaw, you, oh, what's this? All these rules? What's this? All these instructions? 75 pages in English and in Spanish telling me what to do? They don't want me to have any fun. No, you're going to naturally assume they don't want you to chop your freaking arm off. So, so why, when God says, here's gender, here's sex, here's marriage, here's how I want you to use this pleasurable but powerful gift of sex, why all of a sudden do we cross our arms and go, oh, what makes you think you should tell us how to be able to use this thing that you invented? Why would we assume positive intent on Home Depot but not give God the benefit of the doubt that he deserves? Maybe, just maybe, he knows something that we don't know. Well, I don't know, Levi. What if I don't agree with what God says? Change your mind. You're wrong. <laughs> he made us. We didn't make ourselves. He invented sex. We didn't come up with it. So since, since sex is God-given, I submit to you, it should be God-governed. And that takes repentance. That takes humility. That takes willing to yield, willing to bow, willing to come to the altar and repent and worship God through how we use this gift of sex that he's given us. I submit to you, the problem, though, is that we worship sex as God instead of worshiping God with this gift that he gave to us called sex. But it's really hard for God to anoint you like he wants to unless you, you bow. God wants to anoint your head with oil. God wants to anoint your marriage bed. God wants his oil to flow over your life. God wants this loving union, Psalm 128, to be this, this vine in the heart of your home. Little children like olive plants, your grandchildren all around. God wants this generational impact and legacy. And, and he can't get any of his oil on your life so long as you proudly are, bow, are bowing up to him. Who says you, you should be able to tell me what to do? Uh, he's, he made you, and he's going to judge you when you die and stand before him. So that's what gives him the right, and he also wants your best for you. I like the analogy of sex as fire, because fire 
the right way, it's awesome. I, I live in Montana and it's cold and, and snowy and wintry and I love nothing more than starting up a fire in the wood-burning stove and that warmth and that, that charm that comes from it. So, so fire is something in the heart of our house that brings joy to our family. Everyone wants to gather around the fire. But if you let that fire out of the safety and the parameters of the fireplace, it can and will destroy a home. Sex is like that. In this arena, Genesis 2.24, a man, a woman coming together in covenant for a lifetime. Sex will heat up your house. Let me tell you something. Sex is awesome. I've had some. I liked it. I liked it a lot. If the wheat goes well, may even have some more, right? My wife and I, 19 years, five children, we've enjoyed this gift. But I'm telling you, you let that fire out of the fireplace. You let sex out of the arena God intends for it. It can and will burn down your life. What I'm trying to get you to see in my sermon in a sentence is when you take what God told you not to touch, you prevent him from being able to give you what he wanted you to have all along. I'll say it again for the slow note takers. And for those who haven't started taking notes yet, if you see someone not taking notes, write it on their pant leg, right? (laughs) When you take what God told you not to touch, you prevent him from giving you what he wanted you to have all along. Case in point, everything that happens in the Garden of Eden next. God says, enjoy every tree, go nuts. But one tree, don't honor me by what you don't eat from this one tree. And they took what God said not to touch, because the devil slithered up and said, did God really say, is it really so bad? What if you want to have this idea and gender identity? What if you want to have sex with this person? What if you're really polyamorous and you need a bunch of people in your, in your life? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we turn from what God says, and whenever God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself, because our choice to sin is always a, choose, a, a choice to suffer. And they turn from God's best and they prevent God from being able to give them what he wanted them to have all along, a life in the Garden of Eden. And so it is with our choices on sexuality. Well, as I said, this is 200 pages in this book and you can read more of it. I don't have the time uh, in this gathering, though I'll be able to at the fore go into more of this to give you the whole message. So let me just in the next few moments, before we give God a chance to work on our hearts and us to respond to him in this moment, to give you the Costco-sized sample, okay? So if you enjoy this, the chimichangas are on aisle 17, all right? Three lies about sex that we need to have our eyes open to. I want to give you three lies about sex that the serpent slithers up and speaks, and you need today to have Jesus shine his light. The first lie is this. Sex is just physical. Sex is only a physical activity. This is how a godless culture looks on human sexual relationships. Why? Well, think about it. If we're just smart mud and monkeys wearing pants, then why would we not just act on whatever impulse we have? And so, yes, we would deprioritize the emotional or spiritual aspect of it if we don't have a soul, if we're just an accident and whatever. When I was in middle school, there was a song really popular on the radio that articulated this in a very blunt very honest way that I actually have my hat off to because it's actually an honest articulation of a godless philosophy of sexuality. Here's how the song goes. You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, so let's just do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. (laughs) Tinder, swipe right for a good time. Hit it and quit it, right? We just 
when you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you're sexy, you sex, right? So it's just physical, physical, right? There's, 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 no, there's no consequences to it. So just make sure no one's getting pregnant. Make sure no one's going to have an STD. But you can, you know, sleep with this guy on spring break and have this person over there. And, you know, and it's, it's not going to matter a one bit because eventually you can just decide no longer and now I'm going to get married. But that's ignoring what the word of God says about sex, which is what? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read it to you from the message Paraphrase translation, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As it's written in scripture, then what do we have? Referring back to Genesis 2.24 again, the two become one. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, even if no one gets pregnant, even if no one gets one of the 25 STDs that doctors these days have to be trained and savvy in dealing with, even though only 40 years ago, it was only a couple STDs they were primarily seeing. But as more and more people are experimenting, you have this proliferation of disease. But even if no one gets, no one gets an STD, even if no one gets pregnant, there's still something that happens to you on the inside. Two become one, and they can't ever perfectly become unwound. You're, you're binding yourself. What I'm trying to get you to see is, and you need to just, just know this, file this away, all right? Sex involves you on the deepest possible level. So though you, you think you can just walk away from the experience, I don't even know that guy's name, one thing led to another, I met him, and before I knew it, it was what it was. No, you're walking away different from the experience every single time that happens. You, you don't uh, make two things one, like two eggs into one, and then you're ever, ever able to perfectly sort and separate what happened in the experience. I, I sort of think it's kind of like pineapples, the, this whole thing. What's happened to sex in our day is kind of like pineapples. Now, when I bring out a pineapple, it's crazy. I've been, I've been bringing pineapples out in front of audiences for, for a decade, and I've, I've never seen anybody respond. No one ever clapped. There was never a standing ovation. None of you gasped. I didn't hear, ooh, or ah. All of you took it in stride. Like, you've seen pineapples your whole life, and that's because you have. When you go to Kroger... When you go to any market, Safeway, grocery store, you see pineapples. Your whole life, you've taken for granted that this is a cool thing to see. It wasn't always like that. In fact, the year was 1492, and it was when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue that the first time people in Europe ever saw one of these. They started out in South America, then they were transplanted to the Caribbean, and when people brought them back to Europe, everybody was like, what in the world is that mysterious fruit that's shaped like a pine cone but juicy like an apple? So they called it a pineapple. And people were like, one thing's for sure, bring me one back next time you're over on the new world. So they started bringing pineapples back whenever they could. But do you know who could afford them? Wealthy people. Only the wealthy people could get their hands on a pineapple. At the height of the pineapple craze, which went on from the 1500s almost to the year 1900, uh, pineapples became more and more valuable to the degree that in today's currency, it would cost you about $8,000 to get your hand on one. Now, what are you going to do with a pineapple if you get one? Well, you're not going to eat it. But you would display it. Sometimes people would keep them on display until they were rotten. It was the ultimate flex when people came over. It's like, do you see they got a pineapple? And if you couldn't afford one, there were people who would rent them to you for the evening. So you would rent it. It's like the ultimate flex, but it's kind of like a leased Mercedes when you live in a crappy apartment. It's like, oh no, it's all show, but no go. All hat, but no cattle. Like 
they had the party. It's like, wow, they got a pineapple. It's rented. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and this informed art, this informed architecture. When Christopher Wren was designing St. Paul's Cathedral in London on the South Tower, you see on the dome, he included a golden pineapple. This is another Earl of Dunmore, a Scottish estate, stone version of a pineapple on the top of his house. Uh, every year, you probably notice it. Any tennis fans? Any tennis fans in the house? My daughter Olivia is here. She's a tennis player. Uh, every year at Wimbledon, what's on the top of the trophy that Djokovic was kissing last summer? A golden pineapple. That was 1877. The first year men's singles final took place in London. The All England Lawn and Tennis Club and Croquet, by the way. They downplayed that, but that's part of the name also. Uh, but there's a pineapple. That's because it was the ultimate symbol of luxury and privilege. Now, why do we not care about the pineapple? Why did I bring it out? And you were like, big deal. Meh. Here's why. Because throughout our entire lives, here's how we've interacted with pineapples. Pineapple chunks. Pineapple plantations popped up all over Hawaii. Soon steamships made it easy for anybody in Europe to get their hands on a pineapple. And pretty soon everybody had pineapple, so nobody wanted pineapple. And now, even though nothing has changed about the fruit itself, it is the least glamorous thing. They chose to call it a synonym for vomit, chunks, <laughs> barf. Perhaps there's something that we can learn in how we approach sex from the, the mighty pineapple. In our guarding of sex in one careful context, marriage, and that's the only arena in which I allow it. I'm going to guard my heart when I'm navigating the internet. I'm going to guard my heart on a business. I'm going to guard my heart for my coworkers. I'm going to guard my heart from what my eyes see. Like Job, I say, I will set my eyes on no unclean thing. I will make a covenant with my heart to not look upon a young woman in lust. When we treat all women as sisters, when we have that mentality, where 2 Timothy 2.2.2 says, flee youthful lusts. Where I choose to do that, I'm choosing to not allow my, my, my eyes to, to, to look upon another person or experience a person in this way as a commodity. Then sex becomes something that's worthy of art. Sex becomes something worthy of putting on a cathedral. This experience with out of the whole world, you only share with one person till death do us part. My ride or die to the grave. Someone's in the wheelchair, I'm with you. Better or worse, I'm with you. Richer or poorer, I'm with you. I'm telling you, that is steaming. That is romance. That is joy. That is something worthy of singing a song about. That is not sex as just a physical appetite, but something that you know involves your soul, involves your heart, and I'm becoming, I'm willing to become one with you. Listen to me carefully. Sex is more than a physical activity. And number two, the lie that creeps into the church sometimes is I can do what I want and have what God wants. This is the lie of the person who's raised in church, though they know all this. You know better than what you're doing. You know better than how you're living. You know this, and deep down, you know it's even true. You just also want to have some fun right now. So here's what you tell yourself. I can play around here. I can do this now because one day I'm going to say sorry. One day, maybe when I'm a little bit older and I've had my fun and I've done all this like culture tells me to do, I will come up to the altar and I'll pray and I'll ask God to forgive me. And, 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 and you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. He will forgive you when down the road you do that. He, I'll even do you one more. Based on my understanding of the sovereignty of God and my understanding of what took place at the cross, I would even say to you, and this is going to blow your mind, 
that if you are in Christ, he has already forgiven you of sins you haven't even committed yet. Mind-blowing. But let me tell you why it's a really bad plan to say, I'm going to sin all I want now and just say sorry later. First of all, that makes a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross. Can you imagine yourself standing there at Golgotha as Jesus is hanging from nail wounds in his feet and his wrists? And as he's struggling to breathe and God the Father is laying on him the iniquities of us all, can you imagine yourself standing there calling up to him, hey, could you just take one more sin while you're up there? I haven't got around to yet because I want to have fun here and then say sorry later. Does that show the heart of someone truly aware of the gravity of sin and the wrath of God poured out against all unrighteousness and the true cost of what it took for God to save you? Could, hey, I have a couple things I haven't got around to yet, Jesus. Could you just pay, could we just put a few more things up there on the bill? Obviously not. That's how Paul answered it. Certainly not. Don't be stupid. How could we who, are, who have been made alive in Christ want to persist in sin any longer? So it's not like, how much can I get away with, right? It's okay. Okay, so I can't have sex with my girlfriend, but is, is oral sex okay? Is it okay if we're clothes on, bumping and grinding? I'm telling you something. The heart of someone truly touched by the gospel is not how much can I get away with, but how close to Jesus can I walk? I'm telling you, the devil wants to poke out your eyes. The devil wants to cut your hair. We don't want to toy around with sin and get as close to the edge as we can. I want all of God's will for me. I don't want any leaven. Because sin never stays small. Sin will always tell you, oh, it's just a little sin, just a little pornography thing on the side. No one's getting hurt. You can look, but you can't touch, right? You don't have to worry about that. I'm telling you, sin will always grow. Sin will always take more from you than it told you it was going to cost. It will always stay longer than you're comfortable with it staying. So we should have this mentality that says, I don't just want to sin and, and continue to ask God to forgive me. Who told you God's best for your life was him forgiving you from sins he didn't want you to commit in the first place? God would rather, much rather be blessing you and using you than forgiving you. Let's get past the elementary principles of sin and repeat and sin and repeat. Come on, let's walk in God's best for our love lives. Amen. We want something more. So it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell that you should just do all you want now, but then say sorry one day when you've got it all out of your system. Because after all, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Incorrect. What happens in Vegas comes home with you. Your money stays in Vegas, okay? <laughs> but all those bad choices, that comes with you loaded up in your heart to haunt your future happiness and to harm you from what God wants to give you. We don't get anything out of our system by doing it. We load it into our system. That's why Paul said, what a man sows, the same he will reap. I know this is hard to hear, but some of you, your parents' marriages ended because of things they brought into the marriage before they ever met each other. It's how sometimes you see a, a, a relationship, it's almost perfect. How did it destroy? They built on a bad foundation. They brought things in that, that made the relationship almost hamstrung before the race had even started. So it's a lie to say, I'm going to just do this now and then eventually sort it out. Those things will be a weight that you'll be carrying into your future relationship. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, protect your future by living carefully right now. Because now always yells louder, but later lasts longer. Amen? Third lie. 
The third lie we need to have our eyes opened up to, and this is so important for you to hear, especially if right about now, you're like, wow, gosh, I wish someone would have told me this earlier. Some of you are going, I wish I would have been told this before the bad decision, before last summer, before last Friday night at about 10 o'clock. And by the way, pro tip, in this whole series, keep your phone on silent. Because if you get a Tinder notification in one of these messages, you are going straight to hell. I'm telling you. (laughs) The third lie is the lie of shame. It's the lie of despair. It's the lie of cynicism and self-loathing. It's the lie that says, I've already messed up, so there's no hope for me. The person who says, hey, look, no one told me this. I didn't have a dad that sat me down and had this conversation. I didn't have a mom who walked me through these things. I, I, or even I did know better, but I, I went out like a prodigal son. I've been swiping left. I've been swiping right. I've been swiping here. I've been swiping there. I've been swiping everywhere, man, right? And you say, Levi, I feel like damaged goods today. I would want God's best for me, but how could I possibly get it? Been through broken marriages, had my heart broken, filled my heart up with all these images and videos. I get it. I told you when I was young, I was exposed to pornography and it had such a chokehold on me for many years. But in Jesus' name, every stronghold can be broken. In Jesus' name, every lie can be exposed. In Jesus' name. There is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. I preached this sermon one time in Dallas, Texas, and a little old lady came up to me after the service. She grabbed me by the hand. She must have been 75, maybe 80. She had makeup running down her face with her tears. And she said, young man, I wish you could have preached this Thanks sermon. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button you and leave us a review. It, could it have helps saved this podcast reach even more people. Free Chapel can now be your home church no matter where you live with Free Chapel Online. Watch weekly messages from wherever you are with your family and friends. Join online small groups, volunteer, and more. I told you at the beginning, this sermon series, this time is not about you being shamed for your past. It's about God fighting for your future. Can we agree that not a single one of us can go back and change yesterday? Can we agree that not a single one of us can change 10 years ago? But we like can give us, God our today, and in time it will become a new past. And app. Look, it'd God be lovely. Bless you, and we'll and see if you, you next still week. are hearing the sound of my voice and you haven't given your life over to regrets and hardships, it would be lovely to one day stand at the altar and give yourself and your virginity and everything to your spouse, to your wife, to your husband. But even if you're here and you can't do that, you can say to them on that day, I made mistakes, I lived for the flesh better together came to my church. And I was there in that room. I was in the back of one of the campuses. I was watching online and the Holy Spirit of God woke me up and I came to my senses and I realized I was eating pig slop. And in my father's house, even the slaves, even the servants are treated better than that. And so I came home to my father and I chose to, to fight for you even though I didn't know you yet. I chose to wait for you. I chose to walk in God's grace and forgiveness and eventually my scars, they began to heal. Eventually I began to realize I'm a son or daughter of the king. And on this day, I give you everything from that day forward. I'm telling you, that's a good story too. So I speak today not to push you to perfection because that's none of us, but to say Jesus is calling you to take a step. 
take another step and to take another step. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps this podcast reach even more people. Free Chapel can now be your home church no matter where you live with Free Chapel Online. Watch weekly messages from wherever you are with your family and friends, join online small groups, volunteer, and more. Plus, there's weekly content for youth and kids. Join today by downloading the Free Chapel app or head over to freechapel.org online. And a special thanks to those who give generously to help us produce weekly content like this to reach the world with the message of Jesus. If you'd like to partner with us, you can give by clicking the link in the description or on our website and app. God bless you and we'll see you next week.